I'd ask if you please stand with me out of reverence for the word of our Lord as we look at our passage this morning. And uh, again, I'll, be, I'll, I'll read all of, uh, of, um, of Acts chapter 9, uh, 1 to 31, but the, the text for the sermon that we're going to be focusing on is, is really verses uh, 19b to 31. But again, the whole passage, <clears throat> Acts 9, 1-31. But Saul, still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, <clears throat> he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like fail, scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. And now the focus for our sermon today. For some days he was with Damascus, so some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? He's not, has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the disciples and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who had spoken to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. 
So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace. It was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This is the word of the Lord. May he add its, its teaching to our hearts and for the building of his church. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we thank you for your holy word. Lord Jesus, we thank you for what this word teaches about you and about salvation in your name and about how it changes our relationship with you and how it changes our relationship with those around us. Making enemies become friends and even friends to become enemies. But Lord, we thank you that through your death on the cross, we who were once the enemies of God have become the friends of God. That while we were yet enemies, Lord Jesus, you died for us. We praise you, Holy Spirit, that you have guided us into the truth about Christ. You have regenerated our hearts and applied all that Christ has done to our account. And we are confident now, Holy Spirit, you who are at work in our hearts will continue to lead us and guide us into the truth about Christ. That we might walk in repentance and faith and worship. That we might grow in the relationship that we have with you and we might grow in the relationship we have with each other because of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Jane and the kids just finished reading a biography of Nate Saint. And you, hands up if you're familiar with, with Nate Saint and, and who he, he was. Okay, a few people, but I think you'll probably become a little further more aware as, we, as I tell the story. Nate Saint was a Mission Aviation Fellowship pilot. And he, along with fellow missionaries Jim Elliott, Peter Fleming, Roger Rudarian, and Ed McCauley, had traveled to Ecuador in the 1950s with the purpose of sharing the gospel with the Alka people, a, an, a tribe that was isolated in the jungle. And this tribe had a fearsome reputation for violence and murder. The Alka people killed for sport, for lust, for jealousy, or out of simple irritation. And they were known to be especially hostile towards outsiders, killing all who entered their territory. And as the missionaries arrived in Ecuador, they began to do flyovers over the area where they believed the Alca people lived. But because, again, they killed all outsiders, nobody knew exactly where they were in the dense jungle. But finally, after months, they finally discovered the location of the elusive tribe close to a river in the dense jungle. And not willing to risk simply showing up on their doorstep, the team devised a plan where over the course of several weeks, they would fly over shouting Alka greetings on a loudspeaker. And they would airdrop gifts to the Alkas, including tools like machetes and axe heads. And, and, and what they did is, is, is really quite ingenious. They would lower the, the gifts in a basket and they would fly in a circle uh, around, the, around the area so that the, um, the basket would stay in the, would, would go to the center and they would, they would fly in a, in a circumference around the outside. And then what eventually started to happen is the Alkas would actually return gifts and give gifts back to them. And it's finally, after, after weeks of doing this, they, they knew that it was, it was time to, to go and to meet the Alkas face to face. So Nate Saint located a, a, a long sandbar along the river where they, they could land safely, and they, so they landed the plane. 
And then the, mil, the men built a treehouse where they would go up, two of them would go, or three of them would go up and, and spend the night in the treehouse, and, and two of them, Nate and another man, would, would fly um, back to the mission's base at night so that the Alcos would not destroy their plane. But finally, first contact was made. There was an older woman, a woman, and a young woman and a man. And it seemed to go well. They actually shared a, a meal together and, and even um, took the man for, for a flight in their plane. But then a week later, three Alco women appeared on the other side of the river. But as the missionaries approached these women, a band of Alco warriors crept up from behind. And within seconds, all five missionaries were dead. But what is not widely known is that these missionaries were armed, they had guns. They, they could have defended themselves. In fact, one of the guns actually went off during the melee, injuring women in the jungle, but, but none of the missionaries had fired a weapon in order to protect themselves. And the Alcas wondered why, but they didn't realize that the missionaries had made a vow not to kill an Alca to save himself, seeking to follow the example of Jesus Christ, who gave up his life for his enemies without defending himself. You know, as, as I was asking Jane, if as I told the story, if I could talk about how she was, she was crying as, as she was relating to the kids, and the kids weren't, you know, wondering about it. I, was, I didn't think I was going to start to cry. John fifteen thirteen says, "Greater love has no one than this, than that someone lay down his life for his friends." But Jesus gave up his life while we were his enemies. Romans five ten. Saul of Tarsus was a vicious enemy of Jesus Christ. On the road to Damascus, with letters in hand from the high priest to the synagogues, giving him authority to arrest Christian men and women and to drag them bound to Jerusalem, he entered, he encountered the glorified Jesus Christ in a light brighter than the noonday sun. And at first Saul did not recognize the one with whom he spoke, but the Lord Jesus revealed his identity saying, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. The Lord Jesus now sent Saul to Damascus with an entirely new mission. He who had persecuted Christ was now to proclaim Christ. Christ would build his church through the one who had sought to destroy it. And when Saul arrived in Damascus, he began to pray and fast. And we're told that, that even as he was praying and fasting, he received a vision from the Lord that the Lord was going to send a man named Ananias who would pray for him and he would receive his sight. And at that very moment, Ananias also received a vision from the Lord that he was to go to Saul and to pray for him that he would regain his sight. And, but, but Ananias foolishly balked at the Lord's instruction, being more focused on Saul's sin than on the Lord's grace. He had heard all about Saul. The Lord, though, revealed to Ananias, go, for he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must, how must, much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Acts 9, 15 and 16. And Ananias obeyed. He went to Saul, who would have been expecting him. 
And, and now calling Saul brother, Ananias laid hands on him, and Saul regained his sight, was filled with the Holy Spirit. And then Saul then was baptized by Ananias, and he ate food and was, a strength, was strengthened. And so now we get to Acts 19b, as Saul is beginning his ministry. As our passage begins this morning, we'll see that Saul's proclamation of Christ begins immediately, and that his persecution and suffering for Christ follows as his former friends and allies sought to kill him. In the words of commentator David Peterson, the persecutor soon becomes the persecuted. This passage is divided into two halves, Saul's ministry in Damascus and Saul's ministry in Jerusalem. In both places, we see the the pattern of, of recognition and rejection, a proclamation and persecution, and Saul will have to flee for his life from both places. This morning we're going to see how the disciples, both the small d and the capital D disciples, did not recognize Saul. Initially, like Ananias, the disciples and the apostles did not recognize Saul as a friend. But the Jews, including the Hellenist Jews, the group to which Saul had once belonged, now recognized him as an enemy and sought to kill him. As Saul proclaimed Christ, People were lining up to kill him. So take place through much of his ministry for the rest of his life. Those who were his friends had become his enemies. Those who were his enemies would now become his friends. As I said to the kids, that's often what happens when you turn to Christ. No, people might not try to kill us in this culture, at least not yet. But as we proclaim Christ our former friends, even our family, often become hostile. They become hostile to our beliefs, and that hostility, which is ultimately hostility against the Lord Jesus Christ, spills over upon us. As Jesus declared in Matthew 10, 34-37, He did not come to bring peace, but a sword, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. However, the reverse is also true. Other Christians who were once our enemies will now become our friends, will become family. So first, let's look at Saul's ministry in Damascus from verses 19b to 25. In verse 19b, Luke tells us that Saul was with the disciples at Damascus. Now we see these little phrases, and we tend to to, to skip over them, but don't skip over these words. Saul was with the disciples at Damascus. Remember, Saul's intention upon setting up for Damascus, was to arrest disciples. And now here he is, fellowshipping with the disciples as another disciple. This is what Jesus Christ does. Now, no doubt Ananias had spoken up for him and and testified about his vision from the Lord, about Saul, and that the, the Lord had chosen Saul, called Saul, saved Saul, healed Saul, filled Saul with the Holy Spirit, and sent Saul. Much as Philip had begun his ministry in Samaria, Saul began his ministry in Damascus. And in both cases, these men were not sent by the apostles. They were both sent by Christ. And though in the the case of, of Saul, it was explicitly at the Lord's command. 
nor did Saul receive instruction from the apostles. He also received the gospel directly from the Lord, as he testifies in Galatians 1, 11 and 12. Though no doubt he had heard the gospel from the lips of Stephen before he had approved of his murder. Now remember that, that as a, a Pharisee, Saul would have been well-versed in the Old Testament scriptures. He, he would have memorized vast swaths of the Old Testament. But here's the thing. Prior to a few days ago, he hadn't really understood the scriptures. He, he was missing the, the hermeneutical key that unlocks the scriptures. That key is Christ. In his previous life as, as a Pharisee, he had been well-trained. He had sat at the feet of Gamaliel, the renowned rabbi, but he could not understand what the Bible was all about because he did not know Christ. According to his theological framework, Christ was the enemy of God. But it was Saul and his fellow Pharisees who were in actual fact the enemies of God. But now that Saul had come to know the reality of who Jesus Christ really is as, as his Lord and Savior. Once he was indwelt with the Holy Spirit who guided him into the truth, the true meaning of the Old Testament scriptures would have come flooding in. Jesus Christ is the meaning of the Old Testament scriptures. So Saul hit the ground running, proclaiming in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Remember, he had sought to destroy those who called upon this name, and now here he is proclaiming this name. But Saul now recognized Jesus for who he is. He is continuing the ministry of Peter and the other apostles. He's continuing the message and the ministry of Stephen, whose death he had consented to. He is following in the footsteps of Philip, who would proclaim the Messiah in Samaria and preach the name of Jesus in Samaria. So we can see how this is flowing through Acts. We can see Peter and the other apostles, Stephen, Philip, Saul, and for the next 2,000 years and on until Christ returns, there are many messengers, but there is one message, and that message is Jesus Christ. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so Saul here is proclaiming that, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Son of God is a, is a messianic title, something that, 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 again, he wouldn't have had a clue about just a few days before. Now, this is the only time in Acts that Jesus is referred to directly as the Son of God. However, Paul's ministry is characterized by referring to Jesus Christ as the Son of God. You see that throughout his letters. And also in the Gospels, in Jesus Christ is clearly seen to be the Son of God. In John 1, 14, and, and actually like the, the Nazbi better here, it, it reads that, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Luke refers to Jesus Christ as the Son of God many times throughout his gospel account, especially at, at key moments. At the baptism of Jesus in, in Luke 3, 22, the Father himself declares that Jesus is his beloved son. At the Mount of Transfiguration in, in Luke 9.35, the Father declares, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. At the trial of Jesus in Luke 22.70, the elders of the people, the chief priests and the scribes, asked Jesus directly, Are you then the Son of God? He replied, You say that I am. And even more explicitly in Matthew 26. 
63, Caiaphas, the high priest, demands, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. But Jesus replies to him even more directly, saying, you have said so, but I tell you that from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. So Saul is here in, in Damascus in the synagogues proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God. And again, these are the same synagogues that he had had letters from the high priest for authorizing him to arrest disciples. Now he is sent by Jesus Christ, the high priest, authorized to make disciples. This is what Jesus Christ does. He turns enemies into friends. The Jews were amazed. They were dumbfounded. They said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? Has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But verse 22 tells us Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Again, these were the, the scriptures that he'd been well trained in. But now he understood the real meaning of these scriptures. Again, proving that Jesus is the Christ. Again, something he did not know just a few days before. This is going to become Saul's usual pattern. You'll see it regularly in the book of Acts. Once he's going to continue in his missionary journeys, and when he arrives in a new location, he will, the first place he'll go to proclaim Christ is in the synagogue. And he will go to prove to the Jews, his countrymen, from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. But the pattern will also continue that although there are some who will actually repent and follow Christ, that what he most often experiences from his countrymen is rejection. They treat him as an enemy. Luke continues in verse 23. But when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Now, Luke doesn't tell us here, but, but this many days is actually a, a three-year time period during which he traveled to Arabia. Now, Arabia here does not refer to the Arabian Peninsula, but to the Nabataean Kingdom. And which is just northeast, northeast of Damascus. Paul speaks about his time in this area in Galatians 1.17. He says he went away to Arabia and then returned to Damascus. Again, for a three-year period. And in 2 Corinthians 11.32-33, after talking all about his suffering for the sake of the gospel, he speaks about, about this event. Let's, let's turn there to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 32 to 33. It says that at, at Damascus, under the, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in a wall and escaped his hands. So again, the, the timeline is that, that Saul was, was converted spent some time with the, the disciples in Damascus, went away to, the, to Nabatea, to the Nabataean kingdom for three years, and then returned back to Damascus. But what do you think Saul was doing in the Nabataean kingdom for those three years? 
that would cause the, the king of Nabatea to conspire with the governor of Damascus to kill him. Did you think he was there on a holiday? O on a retreat? No, he was obviously proclaiming Christ. And as, as is always the case, most always the case, when he proclaims Christ, it becomes the dividing line. Many people become his enemies, but there are some who actually turn and follow Christ. So Saul did what he did. He was proclaiming Christ in Damascus. He went to the Nabataean kingdom to proclaim Christ, and now he went back to Damascus again, making enemies wherever he went. But in God's providence, Saul discovered their plot, and his friends were able to rescue him again by lowering him through a hole in the wall in a basket. So he leaves Damascus. Well, now let's look at his ministry in Jerusalem from verses 26 to 30. Again, this is over three years after his initial time in Damascus. He speaks about this in, in Galatians 1.18, that after three years he went to Jerusalem. So as he goes to Jerusalem, the disciples make the same mistake as Ananias. They didn't believe what the Lord had done for and to Saul. Now, they didn't have a prophetic vision as Ananias had, but, but, but this is three years later. You would think that, that they would have heard and, about Saul and figured out what he was up to, that he was actually a friend. But now again, before we, we judge him too harshly, let's just think about it. As I said last week, this, this would be like North Korea's supreme leader Kim Jong-un or, or, or the leader of the Taliban, Habatullah Azakutanzada, showing up at church one Sunday morning. There would be a natural sense in which there's like, quick, hide. They're coming for us. But enter Barnabas. Now, we met Barnabas back in Acts chapter 4, where he was presented as a godly man who was known for his generosity. And, and he was also referred to by the apostles. They gave him the, the, the nickname, the son of encouragement. He, he was an encourager of the saints. And, and the word that's, that's translated encouragement there is the same word that we sometimes refer to the Holy Spirit as the, the paraclete. It's a, a para, a, a, it's a, a transliteration of the Greek word parakletos, which means Again, comforter or advocate. And this is exactly what Barnabas is doing here. He is serving as the advocate for Saul. He's an advocate. Again, he doesn't seem to have received a vision like Ananias either, yet he vouches for Saul. He relays what had happened, how on the road he'd seen the Lord, who spoke to him, how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus, and so Barnabas here helped the apostles to accept Saul as a Christian, as a friend, as a brother, and as a partner in gospel ministry. Through the witness of Barnabas, the apostles viewed him no longer as an enemy, but as a friend. And this, this relationship that, that we see, this is the beginnings of a, of a beautiful friendship between Barnabas and Saul. This is a friendship that is made in heaven. It, it is Barnabas who will go looking for Saul in Tarsus in Acts 11. And together, Saul and Barnabas 
also with Luke, would travel on missionary endeavors proclaiming Christ. Now Paul tells us in Galatians 1, 18 and 19 that he only spent 15 days with the apostle Peter and they did not see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. But we're told that he continued now to proclaim Christ in Jerusalem. Verse 28. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. In verse 29, he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. So here he was debating the Hellenists, Jews. Now these are the, again, these are the, the Greek-speaking Jews, diaspora Jews who had, had, had spoke predominantly Greek and, and were more culturally Greek. And again, this was, he was one of them. That, that Saul himself was, was actually, had been a Hellenistic Jew. And here he is, ironically, following in the footsteps of Stephen. However, this time their, their attempt to kill him was thwarted. Now he will follow in martyrdom, but not until he has evangelized much of the then known world some 30 years later. Again, this is very likely the same group who had stoned Stephen with Saul's approval. And here he is now ministering the gospel to them. In fact, he's actually assumed the, the, the responsibilities. He's taken up the, the mantle, so to speak, of, of Stephen in debating these, these Jews. You know, maybe, maybe you can relate to this. When you, after, after coming into faith in Christ, you've, you've gone back to, to old friends and tried to share the gospel with them. Remember in the, in the days and months following my conversion, I, I went back to, to, to many of my old friends and, and, and tried to tell them about Jesus. And they, they didn't try to kill me, thankfully, but they thought I was crazy. And they rejected what I had to say out of hand. But the amazing thing is now, some 30 years later, that many of these men have actually reached out to me. They know a little bit. I mean, I've moved them in a, in a different city now, but and you know, I've lived in many places since that time, but they've, they've reached out to me and they've actually begun to ask me about my faith. And maybe you can relate to this. This is, this is something, don't give up on, on those old friends. Those, those who you were partners in crime with, literally or figuratively with. Pray for them and, and seek opportunity to tell them about Christ. And, and however they respond initially do, does not mean that they're going to necessarily continue to turn away from Christ. Don't give up. When the, the church, when the brothers learned that these Hellenists were seeking to kill Saul, they brought him down to Caesarea and then sent him off to Tarsus. Again, the Jews planned to kill him, but the Lord had a different plan. The Lord's will was not for him to die there in Jerusalem, but to go out and spread the gospel throughout that entire, the entire known world of the time. So the disciples brought Saul to Caesarea, the, the coastal city on the Mediterranean. This is, this is the same place where he's going to be imprisoned in Acts 23. Where he's going to remain in prison until Acts 26 when he is that boards a, a boat for Rome. 
So he's there down in Caesarea. And he boards a boat, but this time to Tarsus, back to his hometown. Now, Tarsus was, was uh, an important Sicilian city, Cilician city in, in Southeast Asia Minor. It was on the, the road from Syria into Central Asia Minor. This is, it's in what is now Turkey. And Saul would be, bla- would be based in Tarsus and would minister in the area for the next seven or eight years. So from approximately A.D. 37 to A.D. 45. And he's, Saul's not mentioned again until Barnabas goes to find him in Acts chapter 11. Again, as we think about the, this pattern here of, 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 of the, the Jews attempting to kill Saul and then him running for his life, we see that ultimately his life was spared because the Lord had providentially directed the disciples to deliver him. And Saul gladly suffered for Christ. He would have gladly given his life for the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, he did give his life for the Lord Jesus Christ. He did so every single day. That's ultimately what it means to take up your cross and follow Jesus, to die daily. Every day he gave his life proclaiming the glory of Jesus Christ. And eventually, again, after 30 years of proclaiming Christ in most of the major cities of the then-known world, he was martyred in Rome by Caesar Nero. He knew. He knew that that just as Jesus had saved him from eternal death, that following Jesus would very likely mean giving up his earthly life. In Philippians, which Paul would write from, from prison later on in his ministry, not long before his death, he wrote that he to the Philippian church that he he recognized that what he suffered had actually served to advance the gospel. And he wrote in Philippians 1, 19-24, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers, with the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. He was actually delivered from that imprisonment, and it was a subsequent imprisonment when he was killed. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For, for, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. You know, that, that verse is, is, is very special in, in, in many, many ways and on many levels to me, and I know to many of us here, but, but it holds a, a special meaning in my life because there was a, a good friend of mine who, who I've shared with, with you about him before. His name was Luke, and he was killed when a drunk driver went through a stop sign and, and T-boned his car. And he died within a, within a kilometer of his home. And Luke's, on Luke's desk, his Bible was open. And, and in that Bible, this verse was highlighted. And when his mom went up to, to his, his room and, and read for me to live as Christ and to die as gain, she understood Luke's death in a different way. It was actually through Luke's death that that his, his mom and his dad came back to the faith and that his sister actually got saved. This is true for the Apostle Paul. It's true for all of us, that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Our lives belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul continues in verse 22, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart to be with Christ 
for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. No, we really, if we understood who Jesus really is, we would have that kind of attitude. The, the death is not something to be feared. Yeah, dying, not looking forward to that. We need to look forward to death because death means for us as Christians eternal life with Christ. It changes our perspective completely when we know who Jesus is and know who we are in Jesus Christ. And so we understand that, that until the Lord, excuse me, who is sovereign, returns or comes to take us home, that our lives belong to him, that, that they are meant, to, that the minutes and the hours and the days and the months and the years belong to him. They are to be lived for him and for his glory and, and anything less than that is infinitely less than the calling to which he's called us. And, but quite often in our lives, we'll find that the very things that we do in the day-to-day of life, our vocation, serving our families, being kind to our neighbors, the things that we do are really the same. But the reason why we do them becomes infinitely more because we're doing them all out of service for our king the one who died for us, the one who laid down his life, again, for his friends. But when he died for us, we weren't his friend. We were his enemy. Here in verse 31, as we've seen repeatedly, Luke ends this section with a summary statement. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Notice here that, that he says church in the singular, but, but there are three regions that are represented here, Judea and Galilee and Samaria. There, there are many churches in that region, but it's one church. One church. Singular. There, there are many gospel-preaching churches in the city, many true churches in the city, but there is one church. There is one church throughout the whole world, one true visible church throughout the whole world and throughout history. And the people in the church, they, they are fearing the Lord. They're walking in the fear of the Lord. They're, this is not a, a, a fear of hell, fear of punishment from God, knowing that a punishment was put on Christ, but a fear of dishonoring and disobeying the Lord Jesus Christ. There's, this is a parallel, but, a, but a, an infinitely higher level than that of a, of a child who, who fears disobedience against a loving and a firm father. Brian Borgman, I think, helpfully defines the fear of the Lord as, as knowing who God is and knowing who we are in him. We're told yet again that the church Again, it's walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. They're actually receiving comfort directly from the Holy Spirit. The church multiplied. It grew. As is often the case, true 
in, in, in true churches, there, there's going to be growth. Again, it's not necessarily exponential growth. We, we pray that, that what is happening at Asbury College would, would lead to growth in the church, not just there, but in many places, that, that this revival will spread. And even, in fact, this church, that, that our hearts will be, revi- will be revived. And that the church will grow as the Holy Spirit works in the hearts of the saints, helping them to walk in repentance and faith as we go out and spread the gospel with others, that that the Lord is going to add daily those who are being saved. This is our prayer. this This is not just for pastors. This is for all of us. And this this conversion that's taking place in the church leads, leads to true fellowship in the church. And as the church fears God, has no fear of persecutors. No fear of, of those who would attack us because we have a fear, a holy fear of God, who is also our Heavenly Father. But as the church grew together, again, this, is, this has become a, 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 becoming an, a culturally diverse church, Jew and Gentile, and national Jew. Judean Jew and Hellenistic Jew and Gentile worshiping together. And we've talked about this before, but I'm, I'm so encouraged by, by our, our brother Baruch Maoz and, and so his church in, that he in, pastored for over 40 years in Tel Aviv, that, that it, it, they didn't just identify themselves as Messianic Christians, but they identified themselves as Christians. It was one of the few churches in all of Israel where where Jew and Arab worship God together in one church. Again, this is what the Lord Jesus Christ does. Coming back again to the introduction of, uh, with Jim Elliott and Nate Saint, they realized that if they were to kill one of the Alcas, in defending themselves, they would have shut the door to the gospel. But in giving their lives, the door remained open for missionaries to go and to tell the Alcas about Jesus Christ. In fact, the sacrifice of those men, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for our sins was proclaimed all over the world as international news outlets picked up and spread the story and God was glorified. The story is still being told and God is still being glorified to this day. And Jim Elliott's wife, Elizabeth, herself went to these Alka Indians, bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And many of these Alkas themselves repented and came to faith in Jesus Christ. There's a photo of, uh, Pastor Josh was talking about, about this on Tuesday evening at Bible study, there's a, a photo of, of one of the, the Alka warriors who'd actually killed her husband, babysitting their child. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ does. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ does. Enemies become friends. And those who treat themselves 
and view us as their enemies, we still love them in Christ. That is the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you know this Jesus Christ? Do you know this Jesus Christ as your Savior, as your Lord? Do you know him as the one who died for your sins and was raised for your justification? If you do, you are now friends with all those who truly trust in Christ from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation around the world. They are your brothers and sisters in Christ, even if they have cultural differences, even if they have different preferences in worship, even if they don't have exactly the same standards as you, even if they treat you poorly, even if they have some theological differences with you. They are your brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay, just look, look around this room. No, actually, look around this room. Like, actually do it. These are your brothers and sisters in Christ. That this brotherhood, this sisterhood has been purchased for you by Christ. Again, apart from Jesus Christ, we, we, we would know each other. And if we did, as I said earlier, again, many of us would have been enemies. I would have been your enemy. But now through Jesus Christ, we are friends. We are brothers and sisters in Christ through his precious blood. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you that in your body you broke down the wall of hostility between us and Almighty God, as you bore in your flesh the wrath that we deserved, the agony that you suffered in those six hours was the agony that we deserve for all eternity. As all of the, the arrows of God's wrath were fired into you instead of us. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you died for our sins and that three days later you were raised from the grave victorious over sin and death and hell, over the, the, our sin, our death, and the hell that we deserve. We praise you that you have done this not just for us as individuals, but for us as brothers and sisters, for your church, again, for this local church and for all of our brothers and sisters in the city and around the world. Lord, we praise you for our reconciliation with you and for our reconciliation with each other. May we walk in the truth of this. May, may this be more real to us than the petty things that divide us. May we grow in our unity and so proclaim Christ. So, Lord Jesus, in your high priestly prayer in John 17, you pray that we would be one, that the church would be one, just as you and the Father would be one. Lord, this is a, a, an infinitely high calling. Cause us, through the power of your Spirit, to, to grow in this, to walk in this reality for the glory of your name and for the building of your church. We pray it all in your name. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.